and welcome to Dive into Deep Tech, a podcast where we talk about novel emerging technologies and the potential they hold to create new markets and solve some of today's global challenges. I'm Ishna Gogia, Program Manager at Republic of Work, and we'll be covering all the bases from health tech and biotech to advanced computing and electronics in the podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dive into Deep Tech. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on the investment dynamics of deep tech ecosystem. I'm joined by Lomax Ward, General Partner at Outsized VC. Lomax previously founded Luminous Ventures and has been an active investor in the healthcare and life sciences sector, making venture and growth capital investments across the EU and Asia at the intersection of technologies and services. Lomax, welcome to the episode of Dive into Deep Tech. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Quite interestingly, you graduated from the University of Cambridge and started out as a corporate lawyer at Slaughter and May in London. Tell us a bit about your journey into the world of science and technology. What drew you closer to deep tech? So I, I think a good question, especially as, you know, they're not necessarily, it's not a natural straight jump from one to the other. But, you know, having read classics at Cambridge, I, you know, like a lot of classicists, you know, what do you... What do you do when you've been studying Latin and Greek? Um, many classes end up in law and felt like a way to transition into the business world for me and really did kind of cut my teeth in all things um, corporate finance and business and had a great time working across London, Milan and Tokyo. But ultimately um, came back and I found myself um, writing the, the prospectus for an IPO and I really kind of thought, well, is this how I want to spend the rest of my career executing other people's deals? and um, clearly the answer was no, both my parents are entrepreneurs and I'd always wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. So, you know, took a, took a job very deliberately, um, as a general counsel to try and move away from being a pure, um, private practice lawyer and, and, and went to work for a small fund where I could get access to the investment team and start actually porting my way across to, to being an investor. And I remember on my first day, I told my boss that I wanted to stop being a lawyer and become an investor. And. I think he um, was a bit shocked because he just hired me as a kind of gold-plated lawyer to to run his his legal function and um, wasn't really that you know impressed. But but thanks to him and a lot of moonlighting from me, I gradually worked my way across to sourcing my own investments and um, working with founders and and sitting on boards, etc. To the point where um, I became a fully fledged investor. And you know we were focusing a lot on on health both on the service healthcare services as as well as emerging digital health this was 2014 2015 um and that was a very interesting time um, in in particularly in, in tech and in venture as um you know digital health was emerging as as um an interesting area um and machine learning was um the proliferation of machine learning was really really underway and so i spent more and more time um within digital health and then also at the intersection of technology and biology um, with my, my current partner, Isabel Fox, who was running the venture fund and um, really felt that that was somewhere I really wanted to spend the rest of my time. I think, you know, at that fund, I'd also spent half my time working in healthcare services. So we were building businesses um, from say 10 million of revenue to 50 million of revenue, 1 million of EBITDA to 10 million, like real businesses, like we built the second biggest IVF group in in Europe, and it was a great place to to learn about business building. Um, but ultimately, I gravitated more to the to the tech and venture side, and particularly this more meaningful um, scientific and um, deep tech aspect. So, what Izzy and I did is 
between 2015 and 2018, we gradually broadened the thesis to start working with more and more technical founders. And I think as you know, as you know, in venture, things can compound very, very fast. So you back um, some technical founders building, you know, working on machine learning applied to healthcare data, and then you suddenly um, meet, you know, their peers, the people who they hang out with outside of that vertical and start to look at some platform technologies and then you make one investment and then it sort of opens your eyes up to um, what's possible. And for me, it was a very cool um, thing to be doing, to be both investing, but also investing in um, things that really matter. You founded Luminous Ventures, uh, where you worked with a lot of great companies and discovered quite a few great deals. And you were investing across AI for dog discovery to digital therapeutics and even synthetic animal uh, fats. Is the startup portfolio drastically different? Is the fund now more focused towards one sector within deep tech? Would you say outsized is Luminous 2.0? So Outsized is certainly, in, in, in some respects, Outsized is Luminous 2.0 in the sense that it incorporates a lot of the learnings that Isabella and myself have um, picked up during you know during that period, as, as well as bringing in the insights and experience of our third partner, Rodrigo. And um, in, in that sense, it very much is. I would say we've now evolved our thinking based on the learnings that we've had. And I think, you know, the way Outsized is positioned today is, Yes, you know, we fall within the, the church or the broad umbrella of deep tech, but there's a sort of a, an emerging DNA to the type of investments and the type of founders we gravitate towards, which, you know, I'm starting to think of it as, um, you know, product-led deep tech. So um, technical founders who are very customer-centric, very um, product-focused and very intent on converting their science or technology into a workable product and building a business with hundreds of millions of revenue ultimately. Um, and that's something that we've learned because I think in the past, and, and clearly this has been happening, you know, for for many years. I mean, deep tech is a transient term. There's always been people investing at the near frontier and new emerging technologies. You know, one of one of the ways you can tackle it is to is to invest when the science and technology is still very nascent when the the TRL, the tech readiness level, is still very early. Um, But fundamentally, as an investor, I think you're underwriting a lot of tech and science risk that, you know, either governments should should underwrite or maybe earlier stage investors should underwrite. So for us, we we now invest um, a little bit later in the spectrum and, and in a type of founder who wants to go all of the way um, and will distinctly avoid um, projects that we deem to be R&D projects that are still very, very far from from being in market. So that's probably one of the um, progressions we've made from some of the investments we made at Luminous, which were still very R&D intensive, um, to being a little bit a little bit quicker and a little bit more oven ready for market in the outsized portfolio. That actually brings me to a very interesting set of questions that I think a lot of our listeners would also be thinking about at the the end of it, which is you've extensively worked with life sciences companies across different stages. And if we look just at the biotech space, the cost of developing a prototype can range anywhere between one to one and a half millions or even upwards. It's like the chicken and egg situation. So how do the entrepreneurs in this, let's say, within the life sciences segment, 
get to their first customer when they don't have a product while they're in R&D. You've probably seen companies going from seed or pre-seed to selling to customers. What does that look like? For all that I say, there's certainly an error that can be made if you you end up trying to commercialize too early. And, and you know, as you said, it's a chicken and egg problem, but you can end up creating, you can end up creating this reputational risk there. And then more importantly, there's a a time risk, um, which is which is crucial um, and potentially um, fatal for, for many startups, is you end up effectively becoming the outsourced R and D hub for for one of these you know corporate customers if you're still too early in your product journey and you end up too involved with them from an early stage. And, and we've seen that a number of times is effectively becoming you know becoming part of their their outsourced R and D. So so I think for me, the, what I look at is not necessarily the absolute traction that the company has in in the commercial um, sphere. And I think, you know, as I said, that can be a very dangerous thing. What I look for is is the North Star or is the um, what the founder is ultimately building towards and what roadmap, you know, what milestones they have in place to to meet um, those objectives. And if they're on a um, the right trajectory, even if they may not have any pilot customers or they may not yet yeah, may not have any you know paying revenue but they um they've taken enough feedback um from customers in terms of the productization of what they're doing um and of course this depends whether you're a pre-seed seed late seed series a investor um then you should be willing i think as a, as an investor to invest in you know on that dotted line um that you see progressing into the future so, for example, you know, it's different when the likes of Bayer or bigger companies are selling an ingredient. You can see it. But when a startup does a sale, even if it's a paid pilot or, you know, agreement with between different entities, even if it's uh, if they're working for corporates, what exactly are they working on? Is it a part R&D consultancy? They're working on a certain flow. You know, having worked with so many companies, do you think it's it's all milestone based when they're working with their clients at early on stages? I think for me, you know, m- you know, a-, a lot of that stuff can be noise from an investor from an investor perspective, and you know, often, you know, intuitively, you, you may think it's wonderful that you know there's lots of big logos that the startup is working with, and the service revenue that that is there, the consulting revenue is is very high, um, but often that is that is a red herring quite often and you know so what we we spend a lot of time with the founders and trying to understand what they want to build and want to achieve and whether they have the determination ambition and level of grit that is required to do that um and then we try and 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 clearly we make a lot of mistakes here but we try and then marry what they are doing on the ground with the resources and time they have and see how that marries up against what the bigger vision has and you know there's there's definitely no one size fits all answer but you know clearly if something that would not make me that excited would be for example you know a team working with a number of big logoed um customers and getting very excited but generally getting pulled from pillar to post by the various um competing um priorities of those customers and not really having their own um north star that they are you know ultimately you know executing against and so you know the ultimate kind of the revenue and the um customer engagements that they have is actually 
flatters the quality probably of the investment proposition from a, from a VC investment standpoint. So recently I came across uh, quite an interesting statement in one of the BCG reports uh, on EU investors versus US-based investors. So the report stated something like EU investors often ask how small the investment can be and how do we de-risk it as opposed to US-based investors where they'd be on the opposite end of the spectrum they would probably ask questions like, would the impact be twice as much if we double the investment? So one of the major challenges for any EU-based deep tech companies is the scaling phase and securing financing, more specifically a lead investor. Why do you think there are fewer investors and only specialist funds uh, wanting to invest in EU-based companies? Is it because of the lack of specific in-house tech expertise or lesser known KPIs to evaluate traction? So this is a great a great question and, and I, I think it hits on a number of the you know it hits directly on why I would say we've underperformed as a continent um it versus the the caliber of both you know academic and technical talent that, that we have. Um, you know partially this comes down to liquidity and, and partially this comes down to mindset. So you know let's not forget that you know Despite Europe being bigger than the U.S., there is significantly significant, um, big, significantly bigger capital base there. So we're talking roughly three and a half to four times the amount of money is raised at the fund level and deployed into startups um, in the U.S. versus Europe, and that gives you more latitude when you're throwing money into early stage projects where ultimately a lot of things can go wrong. If you have more money, you can generally a little be you have a bit more you have a little bit of a wider playing field or latitude to make mistakes. The second one is mindset. And I generally, you know, the way we characterize this is that, you know, a lot of European investors tend to think, you know, through the lens of what could go wrong, whereas the American investors, um, where they've seen success, of course, you know, through the 80s, 90s um, and early 2000s or late 2000s, should I say, of what could go right, you know, where you had companies like Facebook and Google emerging to be worth hundreds of billions from seed stage investments, you know, it's a bit easier to have that attitude. But I think that that pervades. And that means that, you know, when ultimately, you're looking at a seed stage investment, the European historically has tended to worry about what's going to go wrong. Whereas the Americans will worry about what's going to go right. They will lean into the fact that they have a portfolio model and they are happy with 50 to 60% of their portfolio not working out. And that means that, you know, ultimately they'll be happy to put more money into an investment. They might be happier to pay a slightly higher valuation. And at the same time, they'd be willing to put, yes, yeah, so they would be willing to put more money to work with fewer proof points. And that's not to say they are um, less diligent. It's to say that they've seen evidence and proof of the power law effects that work in venture capital portfolios. And as long as you're not capping the upside, which is the most dangerous thing you can do by, for example, investing in a founder or a technology that is ultimately going to be limited in terms of the scope you know, of, of returns, then you can really you have more optionality as, as the VC to, 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 um, to make returns. So that sums up where we are. The good news is, I think, 
you know, things are changing. I think there are European VCs now who are more willing to be bolder. There's more money now in European venture. There's a more US style um, approach amongst some funds. They run a very aggressive power law philosophy where they expect one or two companies only to deliver 60 to 70% of the returns of the fund. So I think that's important because it enables you to place money down without worrying too much about whether you're going to lose it on an individual investment. And maybe on the final point is, yes, the especially from pre-seed seed, certainly Series A, um, the metrics are much more amorphous. So if you take Series A, for example, in consumer internet or SaaS, fintech, not areas that I know well and have dabbled in, in the past and made mistakes, um, you have various metrics that people use as a benchmark for what is market standard for a series a investment you know the classic 1 million arr in a saas business that doesn't work in deep tech and you could be i mean a good example is hoxton farms that we invested in at pre-seed have just raised a very healthy series a but clearly the company is not revenue generating yet so you're raising a you know asking for 20 to 30 million dollars and you haven't got a dime of revenue you need a certain type of investor who's willing to underwrite that. And, and now, yes, a lot of our friends in the US have been doing that for years, but now there are more people in Europe who are willing to do that. But it, it still needs to get better. So to quickly touch upon, you know, you've been, uh, we've been going back and forth around the North Star and evaluating companies. Um, what's that for science and tech companies? You've mentioned quite a few times it's a lot dependent on the team and the product they're building. But there has to be something beyond that that actually, you know, goes into the evaluation process. And how does that work for outsized? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to kind of let you into a secret here, which is that, you know, in the past, when looking at highly technical companies, I've commissioned 60 page technical DD reports from some of my scientific colleagues and friends. I've had scientific advisors, technical advisors tell me not to make investments because it will never work. And, and you know what, in the, in the case of the report, it really made no difference as to whether this was a good or a bad investment. And then in the case of investments where I've been told not to do it because it was too technically infeasible, then actually it turned out to be a fantastic investment. So, um, and vice versa, I've also had technical advice that says this will, you know, um, this will never work. And then we have done it and, and and it's actually worked out very, very well because the team, you know, have have, um, have figured out what they needed to figure out. And ultimately you're backing people. I'm still a big believer that 90 to 95% of where you need to spend your time as a pre-seed seed close to series A investor is with the people and the founders. I'm, I'm, I'm just, that's the only thing. You know, there's various memes on Twitter about this, but you start your investment career going, it's all about the people. And then you suddenly raise money from from investors and you start to maybe try and make it more the process more scientific because you think it should be because you want to justify your own existence or whatever it may be. And you put in place lots of processes for um, elaborate DD um, exercises, et cetera, and market analysis and talent analysis 
um, and competitive analysis and all this kind of stuff, technical DD. And then you come full circle back to the end after eight years of, of bruising and scars. And you go back to the adage that it is all about the people. And I know that's a meme that's thrown around Twitter a lot, but I've actually kind of personally been on that journey in, in a sort of five year time frame. Um, and it really, really is very, very true. I think the only thing I would say is clearly we do do our technical DD, but it's done at it's not done at the level of a you know multi-page report. It's done at a view from somebody who is informed about the technology level um, and the state of art that's currently in the market. But generally, it's a commercial view. It's somebody who's um, in the market. It's not an academic. It's generally a CTO. Um, working in working in a business or who's worked in in startups and it's getting from them um, their view um, on two things one is both on is what the founding team is presenting up to us consistent with where they are actually at um, which really talks more to the um, integrity of the founding team as to how they present things and then the second one is is there something is there um something that is so important that we should know about um, that will make this journey nigh on impossible. And, you know, you could maybe use, you know, long read sequencing as an example, or, or sorry, short read, read sequencing. You know, you could look at Illumina and be like, well, there's a, there's a behemoth that has 80 to 90% of the market and they've locked down all of the patents across the whole world. And suddenly this is going to make this journey mater materially different. I mean, that's just an example. I'm not saying you should, we shouldn't be innovating in that space because clearly we should be and there's lots of great stuff going on there. But um, that's an example of, of where we just need to know um, before we make the check. But again, otherwise it's spending time with the people. Um, and, and, you know, we may be wrong, we may be right. We're learning all the time, but generally where we spent time with people and we've made, we've made bets and um, it seems to be heading in the right direction, touch wood. And you know, with so many corporates entering the space uh, with their venture arms, uh, startups often get excited about getting associated with them. So what would be the risks associated with corporate venture funding that founders should consider or think about? So, you know, another great question. I, I would say um, there's a risk you shut down certain avenues that you, you would otherwise have by hitching your um, wagon to a particular corporate. So that clearly may shut down um, commercial opportunities with with other corporates. So that needs to be um, that needs to be analyzed quite quite um, carefully before taking on that capital. Um, the the second one, I mean, if there is any competitive element um, between what you're doing and them is then that may well be um, if you're disrupting them, for example, um, that may be hugely problematic because, you know, the more successful you become, um, the more of a thorn you can become in their side and suddenly they're on your cap table. So clearly, if that is the case, um, you know, you need to make sure that there's limitations on, you know, information rights and all that good stuff baked in early on um, because that can become problematic. You know, clearly... There's a big spectrum here where you can take money from a corporate VC that's, you know, um, very, very, very ancillary to what you do. And sometimes it's actually 
there's a lot of crossover. So depending on where you are on that scale, you need to be very, very careful or not, as, as the case may be. And, and, and the other one I think is, you know, you never know whether a corporate VC is going to, this is more of a signaling risk, you know, in, in the world of, of venture that we live in, where signal is still very, very important and people react to, to signals um, that perhaps are not the right signals, but, you know, it just gives the herd mentality that pervades in venture is, is still, you know, not to be um, ignored because ultimately it can, it can, can both um, make and destroy funding rounds is, um, you know, you never know whether they're going to follow on or not um, because the personnel may change. They may not follow on because they have the information rights that they need and they don't need to follow on. Um, and if they don't follow on, then, you know, what does that mean for you? Um, if you were assuming they would follow on, then you've suddenly got a hole in your next fundraising round. And if they don't follow on, then clearly other people may be asking why they may be forgiving and they may not be. Um, so that's just one thing to always consider before, before taking it on. But otherwise we've had great, you know, great relations with a number of corporates that we co-invested with and actually in one of our companies and, and edge AI now the corporate's doing its third follow on. So, you know, clearly it, it, it it's, um, it, it depends who you're dealing with. Yeah, I think it's more like if it works for one person, it's not necessary. It, it goes the same way for the other company as well. And it also, I think, depends on the stage of the company as well. So with the likes of maybe Mark, if they're early on and if you're part of one of the accelerators, it might make sense to have them on board as opposed to at a later phase, having another corporate venture out there that may or may not make sense. But talking about the deep tech investment landscape, it's quite unequally spread with, you know, most of the investments, about 80% accounting for synthetic biology, AI and advanced materials. What are some of the areas that are growing rapidly, especially within EU? So I think we've seen more and more invest, you know, more and more founders building um, companies in space. So um, be their software or hardware. So as we, as the cost of launch rapidly has come down and will continue to go down, um, that will that is opening up and has opened up new business models um, for um, the use of space as a commercial um, field. Um, so we've seen a number of companies, both software and hardware. Um, tapping into that, which has been very, very exciting. And I think, you know, Europe can be a good place to do that because from a startup perspective, provided you have the distribution channels to, to governments, you can actually, as a very early stage company, um, tap into some very favorable grant funding or even government contracts. So, you know, as we know, we're entering into a, a bit of a space race, which Europe is participating in. Um, and actually a number of very small startups and which would never win a government contract in many other sectors are actually becoming quite competitive just because it's um, beyond the primes, uh, the prime, you know, the prime incumbent companies, there isn't really much going on. So um, that is exciting and potentially lots of non-dilutive funding and some interesting new business models there. I mean, that you know, everyone's very excited about AI now, particularly after GPT-3 and, and DALI. And I think, you know, in a way, as someone ex ex explained it to me, that was a great kind of go-to-market for AI as a as a category because it's put AI really in, at the forefront of, of everyone's minds again, despite, you know, despite it clearly machine learning has, has had its kind of ups and downs in the last few years. Um, I think, you know, we're seeing more and more um, whether it's DevOps or tools um, or companies using machine learning in their businesses. So that will that will continue 
Um, and it's very, very exciting to see what, what what's going on on the creative creative side there. Um, you know, you see it less in Europe, but actually, you know, I think there's there's more and more of a convergence of um, to the extent it's possible in uh, in our in our um, in our in our world, more of a convergence of of opinion that AR is going to be um, a much bigger thing than VR. Um, so more and more companies sort of using and getting ready for um, and applying AR to to different sectors, be that you know manufacturing or health, or um, that's been particularly interesting and in seeing that coming through. And then finally, I would say, you know, this emerging trend of the unbundling of of the cloud um, and and privacy and edge, um, I think will continue to proliferate and be very, very interesting. So um, we're seeing a lot of startups working in those areas with edge privacy, um, driven by both you know government um, and um, consumer um, consumer tastes and demands. And you're also observing a shift with more and more European bodies like EIC coming in and supporting early stage startups. Are you observing there's a shift even within the venture capitalist uh, firms or venture capital firms that they're joining the EIC journey as well? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, yes, I'm always a bit um, in terms of European, you know, government money is great, but, you know, ultimately um it's it, it's it, look it, it's it's great at the early stage and it's it's really fantastic source of of non-dilutive funding for a lot of these companies but these government you know you can have government programs alone aren't going to be enough right you know you need you need private funding at the at the mid and late stage to actually push these companies through or to enable them to fly which then you know develops the talent pools for the future generations of founders. And you've seen that in the US with the, the PayPal mafia. And, you know, we now have, I think in Europe, the Spotify mafia. And, you know, if we want to have our own kind of equivalents in deep tech, um, we need the the private funding markets to, um, to be actually, to have higher risk appetite. And, and actually, you know, we need to, we need to be, we need to be better raising money and telling the story ourselves because don't forget that you know we're raising money from some governments but largely from from private private markets so the more we can raise the more we can deploy and 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 then um you know the more success hopefully we'll have as long as we deploy it in the right areas coming back to the portfolio at outsize what are some of the spaces you've invested in and what are the spaces that interest you the most you know, in the current trend. So I think, yeah. So at Outsize, we've made we've made investments across both the intersection of technology and biology, um, space, AI, um, new foods, new materials, and and that's all very exciting um, across all of those. And we're seeing a lot of innovation um, and some great founders building building companies across those. I think like continue continue to see like amazing founders working in in symbio and at the intersection of tech tech bio and technology and biology as, as that as that trend as that has evolved and and we'll continue to see that so very very excited about the likes of phenomic in our portfolio hoxton farms 
uh, Molecule One, Biomage. Um, these are all exciting areas that will um, have huge impact across health, food, um, and, um, and materials as well. And what kind of amazing products we might see in the coming years based on the current investment landscape, you know, based on the deal flows you get in your opinion, what could be some of the, you know, kick-ass inventions we could be witnessing in the next couple of years? Yeah, well, I mean, the obvious one is the flying car, but, you know, I, I don't, you know, it's not, in a way, that's not the kind of thing we invest in just because it's, it's as I like to say, we're, we're a little bit, we come in closer, um, closer to market when the companies have reached a level of maturity rather than being just pure R&D. But that's the obvious one. But I think, you know, I think what we're seeing in food is fascinating. Um, what we're seeing in alternative products um, to replace plastic from the entire and rip, rip plastic out from the entire supply chain is is fascinating. Um, and and we're only we're only really at the very, very, very beginning of that. Um, as I said, I think we're moving to to a world beyond um, beyond the iPhone now, and I think AR, um, you know, is very, very exciting. And in terms of consumer consumer devices, and then you know, the more funky end of the spectrum, you know, what have I seen this year that could well become a big thing? Not on the consumer angle, but is um, but certainly on, on on the business side is um, is manufacturing in space. So using um, or leveraging the benefits of microgravity and um, uh, lack of lack of infections um, in um, and the vacuum is, uh, is to manufacture high value materials in space is, is a fascinating kind of moonshot project. But if these things work, then they can be um, incredibly impactful. Any one particular moment that sticks out working with the likes of synthase or phenomic or biomage so far? Yeah, well, I mean, a number. I mean, I would say that, you know, look, these, the firm we're building, is it's a multi, for me and, and my partners, it's a multi-decade um, journey. So we're still very, very early um, in, in terms of what we're, de- what we're building, and we still don't know whether we're any good at it. Um, and actually, I'm hoping that a lot of the, you know, good times as an investor are are in the future because you know these journeys at the individual company level do take eight to 12 years and you know i'm under no illusions about that but you know of course if we don't celebrate the early wins in the meantime then it could be quite depressing um as both an investor and a founder if, if things don't move in the right direction so i think for me it's um you know most of our companies now are the ones that have got through to, to series A, we've got one at series B. So they're still relatively early in the grand scheme of life. But you know, where you see the tech and the science and the research move into a product that is repeatable, that is standalone, and more often than not self-serve, um, that is an incredibly rewarding and um experience just to see that. I mean, we are a absolutely tiny fragment of um the journey for this so i think you know i should take zero credit you know we're just moving other people's money around but watching that happen and then watching um customers get excited and and start to join waiting lists and start to you know to buy at numbers that we didn't think previously were possible um and in the case of for example optellum suddenly signed 
three deals with one of the biggest pharma companies in the world, two deals with one of the biggest med device manufacturers in the world, all in the space of 12 months, these things start to um, accelerate and compound very quickly. And, and what I would say is, you know, particularly in deep tech is a lot of the companies follow and what I, you know, what I think of a non-linear trajectory. So, you know, if you're investing in a consumer internet company that's growing users, you know, week on week, month on month, and, and same with a SaaS company, you can see a kind of, once you have product market fit, a relatively linear um, progression of the companies and deep tech companies, it's not like that. You kind of go from plateau to plateau. Um, and, and that can be a very stressful thing, of course, for the founders and for the investor who sits behind that, um, because you just don't know. And if you can't get off from one plateau to the next, maybe like in a sort of game of Super Mario and jump to the next level, um, you can be stuck and you run out of money and, you know, either you sell for, for a peanut fraction of what you're worth or you, you know, you go bust. And so that kind of non-linear aspect to what the kind of companies you're working with can be, um, it puts a lot of stress clearly on everyone involved or stakeholders. But when you unlock a, I guess, unlock a level and move to the next one, it can be incredibly rewarding. And that's what I love about it. You know, um, it's that, it's that sort of um, non-linear aspect to what we do, because when you move, suddenly things can move very, very fast. Uh, well, there's no doubt that the deep tech funding will continue to grow. But I think the real question is, what would be the scale and speed at which we will see the sector growing? And deep tech is quite a broad term. What does it mean to you? How would you define deep tech in your own sort of terms? It's a great question. It's often the first one that LPs ask, you know, LPs ask me, people invest in our fund. And, and there's lots of different answers, you know, be it. And I've been, to be honest, I've been around the houses on this, trying to come up with something which encapsulates, you know, what um, what both deep, what deep tech means to us. Um, for me, the simplest way to put it is you're commercializing something which is patentable. And that doesn't mean that you need to patent it and all the patent is the right thing to go. And I always firm believer that execution is the best defense any business could ever have rather than you know, your underlying IP portfolio. But you need... You know, a deep tech company is doing something that is not um, standard, that is not the current state of the art, um, that is not something you could outsource to a um, outsource developer. It's something which has an element of uniqueness. It doesn't need to be fundamental Nobel Prize winning science, but it needs to have something at its kernel um, that gives it a head start on the market and some defensibility, um, even if most of the defensibility ultimately will come through execution in due course. Well, those were some wonderful insights on the deep tech investment landscape. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lomax, and for taking our time and walking us through the journey of, you know, where the deal starts, where do we need to concentrate and focus, and how do we actually start supporting deep tech companies in EU and seeing more deal flow as we go forward. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lomax. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dive Into Deep Tech, powered by Grant Thornton Ireland and brought to you from Republic of Work Studio, Cork's leading co-working innovation hub. Follow us online for more information. Till then, stay tuned.